Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. This is the podcast that tells the stories of women with unusual, interesting, and inspiring careers. And if you subscribe in iTunes or wherever you normally get your podcasts, you'll find a host of wonderful women talking to me about their lives, their motivations, their successes and failures, and what they've learnt. There's so much to chat about with this week's guest, Ninora Fernandez-Brookshire, and I am delighted to have her on the show. Nino is the co-founder of NRI Women, a platform supporting non-resident Indian women across the world. It has now grown to be a community of over 3,000 women living in a multitude of countries. You'll hear Nino talking in a minute about how Indians traditionally do not like to air their dirty laundry, as she puts it. But moving internationally away from strong family and community connections is hard, and her organisation aims to support and nurture women through the transition and challenges they may face. Earlier this year, Nino and her co-founder and friend Bettina started the NRI Woman podcast, showcasing the stories of Indian women abroad and telling their stories to a wider audience. Ninora also co-founded the Naya Jeevan Foundation with her husband Edward, an NGO that partners and supports the work of the Rescue Foundation, a multi-award winning charity based in Mumbai that fights human trafficking of girls into prostitution. The Rescue Foundation, led by an engaging and very determined woman named Mrs. Trevaney, who is a former investigative journalist, has so far rescued over 5,000 girls from prostitution all over India, pursuing prosecution for their pimps and captors, and rehabilitating these girls through education, healthcare and counselling. Numbers are hard to gather accurately, but NGOs estimate that somewhere between 20 and 65 million Indians are trafficked each year. Men, women and children are trafficked for diverse reasons, but the abduction of girls and their brutal forcing into prostitution is a major problem. Naya Jeevan means new life. I started by asking Ninora to tell me a little bit more about the charity she founded and how it came about. Um, we, When I turned 40, uh, which was six years ago, I'm never afraid to tell you how old <laughs> I am or anybody for that matter. Um, you know, I've, I've always said this, I've said, I've always believed that I'm a giver and not a taker. So when I turned 40, um, Edward, Edward asked me what I wanted to do with my birthday. We wanted to have a big celebration because growing up, you know, we didn't have this kind of luxury. So I said, okay, well, we'll do a big 40. So we ended up celebrating it at the Yale Club in New York City. And if so you've nice. been to New York, yeah, you'll know that, that the Yale Club is one of the oldest clubs and a really nice, fancy club. And so we said, okay, fine, we'll do it there. And then when it came to gifts, I refused to accept gifts. And I feel I always felt I'm very blessed. So I, there's no need to come home with bags and bags and boxes and boxes and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of re-gift it eventually, <laughs> which most people <laughs> do. So, so I said, uh, you know, let's, let's just do something different. And so what I did was we researched online and Edward actually did it for me. He researched online and came up with uh, Rescue Foundation. In the past, uh, uh, to, to go back a bit, in the past, we've always donated to something or the other. But uh, but Rescue Foundation, for some reason, just stuck with us. You know, like there was something about it. And my dad lives in Bombay, uh, semi in Bombay, semi in Goa. But my dad uh, happened to be in Bombay at the time. And this foundation works out of Bombay. And he doesn't live that far from this foundation. So he happened to go there, take a look at it, kind of say, you know, uh, kind of take uh, walk around and say, okay, you know what means this looks like a legit place. So that's how we ended up. Uh, we ended up donating. So at the time we raised, I think, over three thousand dollars just from my birthday 
um, birthday gifts and uh, yeah, donated to them. And it's an organization that works with girls um, rescue, rescued from sex trafficking. And, uh, you know, like I said, we were very comfortable with them. And uh, that's a lot of money in Indian currency uh, that when it got converted. So um, and it's been six years now and counting. And uh, and we still support them. So we have our own NGO. So Edward decided to open up the NGO in New York. So what we do is we support we support them. We support Rescue Foundation. So we so we give them 100 percent of whatever donations come in. 100 percent goes to them. And can you just talk a little bit about the issues around sex trafficking in India and, you know, and um, how the Rescue Foundation helps those girls and the extent of the problem in Bombay and kind of in the wider Indian society? It's, it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. It's a big problem that will never go away. It'll never go away. And uh, what what uh, what Rescue does is so so the story about Rescue Foundation is it's um, her the lady who runs it now, Mrs. Treveni. Her husband started it, and he was killed in a in a car accident. As I, when I say killed, as in you know semicolon killed, mm-hmm. and in a car accident. And long story short, he um, she now runs it for him. And and basically what they do is they rescue all these girls. They go into brothels. Uh, in the middle of the night, during the day, rescue kids as old as seven, eight, nine, you know, girls that, that when I started this were my daughter's age, you know, and um, it's terrible. It's it's really terrible. And some of these girls are pregnant, they've got kids. um, And what they do is they go in, they rescue them, uh, they repatriate them. So they bring them, they, 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 they fight all the court cases, because remember, there are, there are pimps, and there are brothels that, that no people, you know what I mean? Mm, so so sure. it's it's a big it's a big mess in India, a huge mess. But she does it, she does it all by herself, and we have so much of faith in her. And she's truly, truly a humble lady. She's come to my home, she's lived in my apartment in New York. You would never know that this lady walks out on the streets, um, you know, and rescues these girls. And they don't just rescue one or two, they rescue them in groups. In groups. Mm. And are they girls that have been brought to the cities from elsewhere on a pretense of um, coming to a better life? Or are they girls that usually have kind of come from poorer backgrounds in the cities? Is there a trend to that? Yes, it's a bit of both. There's a bit of both. So there are there are girls that are sold by their families, sometimes by their families. And Mrs. Triveni has actually gone back when they repatriated to their homes. Mrs. Triveni has actually gone back to their homes. She does she does this. She'll go back or she'll check on them once a year. And some of these girls are sold back in to to the brothels. Gosh, yeah. Yeah, it's scary. It's a very scary. I mean, and some of them have AIDS. We've gone there's so they've got a they've got one um, they've got a huge place outside of Bombay, like an hour, maybe an hour or two hours outside of Bombay, which we've also visited. Both Edward and I have gone, and uh, they house over hundred girls there. And there's a there's a separate section for girls that have um, AIDS and HIV. We're so fortunate in the West now that excellent treatment is available for HIV and AIDS and that the stigma around the disease, while still undoubtedly present, has been broken down somewhat by increased education. This is not true in many developing parts of the world. There has been much coverage of the AIDS epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa, but the extent of the problem in other nations is rarely discussed. Yeah, it's still a taboo. Uh, people, in fact, they have they get death threats because she's got this place there in India, in, in that in that area, and um, you know people they're shunned. They don't get the medication that they need. They're always constantly looking for medication. They're constantly looking for money. They're constantly looking for help. And this is this is why Edward started Nayajivan. 
So we could, because we live abroad, we live, we live in the US or we live in Dubai and we, you know, we're, we're so fortunate. So through us or through, and, and we're not the only ones that help them. So, so don't get me wrong. We're not the only ones that help them. They do get help from outside India, but it's not enough. It's never enough because the amount of girls that come in, um, it's, it's shocking. Absolutely shocking. India is by no means the only country where women and girls are trafficked into prostitution. And the statistics on this in the UK are also worrying. The National Crime Agency report that most victims rescued here are primarily from Eastern Europe, Vietnam and Nigeria. And that at one point in 2017, there were over 300 live policing operations targeting modern slavery in the UK alone. Resources in India for that kind of policing are scarce, and so the work that the Rescue Foundation and their supporting partners like Nayajeevan do is really vital. Nino and I then wandered off in conversation on various tangents, but eventually came back to talking about Indian women, the challenges they face, and the podcast that she runs with her friend Bettina. It's it's very different, and I think I mentioned to you before as well that I think we're we're one of the few um, that do what we do when when where it comes to you know interviewing women of uh, uh, different backgrounds, culture. Just just in even in our India, in in whole of our India, we have different kinds of um, you know um, it's like a melting pot basically. And so we have so many women that have such phenomenal stories to tell, and uh, and that's why we we have our platform is for them to come out and just talk about it, be open about it, because we're a very closed culture as well. And we don't like to air out our, our dirty laundry kind of a thing, like we call it, you know. But uh, but with this, we've really, I think I think personally, both Bettina and me both think personally that, uh, you know, we're doing a good thing. I think we're doing a good thing because we don't make any money out of this, but we're happy to bring out their stories and talk to them and, and just make friends, you know, uh, as we're going so how did you, um, when did you set up NRI Woman and how did that come about with Bettina? Bettina and me are very close friends and uh, we're, we're family basically. And, you know, we chat every day as, as all of us do, right? We're all friends and, you know, we have something or the other to talk about. And us, us so much as in gossip is just about every everyday struggle, you know, um, issues and stories. And, and so one day during one of our chats, um, you know, she just came up with the idea and she's lived in Dubai um, for, for a very long time. And um, so she was the one who came up with the idea about NRI. And she said, you know, she said, means we don't have, there's there's not a Facebook group for for women of Indian origin. There are tons of other groups. There's the American moms in Dubai. There's the British moms in Dubai. Um, but there's no Indian moms in Dubai, you know. And she was like, we should come up with a platform. And um, and I was like, okay, what the heck, let's do it, you know. So we did it. and uh, And then same thing. One day she woke up and she's like, you know, would you like to do a podcast with me? And at first, I have to be honest, I was like, what is a podcast? You know, I had no clue. <laughs> no clue. And so she explained to me and I kind of did a little bit of research and, and I was like, heck, let's do it. And uh, that's how we came up with NRI. So NRI stands for Non-Resident Indian Woman. And that's how we uh, started the podcast. And it's a great platform for, you know, we have inspirational topics and um, and we haven't looked back. We haven't looked back. We've got over 3,200 members just in the group alone. Wow. Uh, we have, yeah, we have, uh, and it's still counting. Every day we have, we have people joining in. Um, same thing with the podcast. We've uh, two seasons, 27 episodes in total, and we're now um, heading towards our third season. Amazing. And um, you and Bettina are both living in Dubai then. You're now in Miami, which is cool. Um, where are most of your members from? Is, is, did it start as a mostly Dubai thing or is it now everywhere in the world? Or how do you, is the word just spread gradually? Yes. So I think now it's everywhere. 
Um, we have people that are joining from all over, but it began with Dubai. It began with Dubai, it began with India. And uh, and so most of our members, of course, most of our members are Indians, but uh, we welcome everybody. There are Brits, there are Americans, you know, we have friends who join in. But the group is uh, mainly just for women. It's a closed group. We don't allow men to come in, but uh, because, you know, there are a lot of personal conversations that happen in there. And um, but the podcast page allows the men. Yes. And I was just going to ask you about, um, you know, as the community of expats living abroad. You said Bettina is like your family. When you don't have your family with you when you're abroad, you have your friends as your family instead. And and actually, I think it's an amazing resource for people to have to be able to share their experiences of that. Um, how have you found being an expat in, in life? Because you've obviously moved around loads. You know, how have you found the kind of constant up and down and kind of moving around, I guess. Um, the one thing with me is uh, my mom, bless her heart, she's no longer living, but she would always say this to me. She would always say, Nino, you have way too many friends. <laughs> and, and I would always laugh at her, but but it's it's an absolute true, true case. In, in my case, it's so true because I've my friends are my everything. When I got married in 96 to Edward and I left uh, Dubai, I thought my life was going to end. Because Dubai was home, I had friends, I had childhood friends, um, I was close to my friends in India, and I literally thought my life was going to end. But I went to Bel. So we, um, let's go back a little bit. So we traveled a lot, as you know, I mentioned to you earlier that um, we did a lot of traveling. And the one place where we uh, sat put was Brussels, and it was the most difficult time of my life because I knew nobody. I didn't speak the language. I didn't speak French. I didn't speak Flemish. So it was very difficult for me. But I, but I gradually kind of, you know, went up the, went up the ladder a little bit, started to make friends. But I kept in touch with my old friends, and so when I moved back to Dubai after this many years of being in New York, being in Brussels, um, I went back to the same old friends that I had left behind when I left Dubai in '96. Um, and I do believe that when you're an expat, um, you know, it's it's great to travel and it's great to go out there and and you know venture into new things and start new, you you know what I mean, new stuff. But your friends, the, the ones that, that you hold close will always stay close, you know, and they help you. They really do. And actually, when you when you are moving around and you're living away from home, those people are your your everything, really. You know, they're your support they really system are. and they're your support network. And they're the people that you can turn to when times are tough. And they're so valuable, aren't they? They really are. They really are. I mean, over the time, like I said, over the years, I've, my tribe has increased. And I'm, I'm, I always say I'm very blessed when it comes to my friends because I truly, truly have a good set of some, you know, some amazing, phenomenal women in my tribe. I really do. And I'm very proud of that. <laughs> Other than my two children, I'm very proud of my friends. <laughs> so that's, well, that's awesome. And um, where do you kind of see, do you have future plans for NRI women or do you, do you have things in mind that are going to be... Uh, in the pipeline or are you just continuing with what you're doing for the time being have, have you got a plan for growing or i mean we do we talk about it often um we'd like to we'd like to see we, the, the only thing is because it's it's a niche audience because it's about indians and it's about nri women women living abroad from you know away from india so it's truly a niche audience so it's it's taking time to kind of grow and build uh but we're getting we're getting there. A lot of people are hearing about us and a lot of people are listening to our podcast. Our social media is growing. So we're getting there. It's one step at a time. One step at a time. 
Nino mentioned that Indians are sometimes less open to discussing personal stories, health issues or other topics publicly that might be seen as inappropriate or shameful. She and Bettina are not afraid to tackle difficult subjects head-on though, and they've covered rape, infertility and adoption as a single woman in recent episodes of their podcast. I asked her whether she thought that the culture around openness was changing amongst the Indian population. It, it, yes, it's definitely in the culture, but I don't think it will remain. I, I have to agree with you that the younger generation um, is coming out a lot more bolder, a lot more smarter. And, um, and I, hope, I hope that for India's sake um, that they do change. And, and same thing with the podcast. You know, what we are doing um, is so different from everybody else that, uh, that we hope just two, two simple girls, you know, trying to make a big difference in the world of podcasting, but, but more so in the world of uh, India. You know, that uh, we're, we're, we're not a banter. We're not, we're not, you know, we don't, we don't talk over each other. It's, it's, we let the other person talk. And when we let the other person talk, we let them tell the world their stories. And Indians, women especially, do have stories. You know, we, we, we are women of substance. Um, we all have a story to tell. So please, you know, listen to our podcast and, and you know, uh, recommend it to a friend or a family. And I'm sure you learn something new. Well, I can highly recommend it because I have definitely been learning new things, that is for sure. And that's not the only fundraising you've done. I'm so excited to hear about your other um, big adventures because you have done some other fairly um, interesting, shall we say, uh, methods of fundraising with some other friends. Can you tell me about um, going to Ladakh and, and walking, you did a minus 25 degree, yikes, um, walk up the River Chadar. Can you tell me a little bit about that, Nina, as well? Yes. So while I was in Dubai, it was uh, uh, 2016, a friend of a friend, actually, she's now a very close friend, but when I, when I first met her, she was a friend of a friend, and um, she was planning a trip to Leh Ladakh. So uh, she's, she runs her own own kind of uh, foundation, uh, New Life's New Beginning. And so she tends to go to Ladakh quite often. So one of these trips, uh, you know, this friend of mine started talking to me and saying that, oh, Harsha's going on this trip, you know, you should look into it. And I was like, okay. And so I did. And uh, we collaborated with another, she rather collaborated with another Australian NGO. And we walked the Chadha River for eight straight days. And the temperature being anywhere from minus 23, 25 degree. Um, And yeah, it was... If I can tell you one thing, if there's, if when, when you say think outside the box, this was it for me. Oh my goodness. Were you walking on the actual frozen river or on the banks of the river? No, you walk on the actual frozen river. Oh my gosh. In-, in, in that, in that temperature, because children do that. Children walk, because Ladakh is so far stretched out that um, the children walk that river to get to schools because there are not that many schools there. And so we did that to help raise money to build a hostel for those children. And I had never, I had no clue. I didn't even know where Leh Ladakh was on the map of India before I decided to do this. So we went with a team. We were nine of us. None of us knew each other except for me and Harsha. And, uh, and we did. We stayed, uh, we would uh, camp out in tents um, in the nights. It was so, I mean, I still remember those eight days if, like it was yesterday. I still remember those eight days like it was yesterday. And um, had you done a lot of preparation for that? I did. I had to. I had to really exercise. I, my, I had to give, the, give up the love of my life, which is wine. I had to, <laughs> <laughs> I, I Me too. <laughs> I had to give up the love of my life and then I had to exercise. So I, I, I exercised. I would walk every day for three hours 
I walked with weights on. I ran. I stopped alcohol. I don't smoke, but I um, I, I exercised. Believe me, I exercised. I, I dropped. I don't. I don't even know how many pounds, and um, and I prepared myself. But but nothing can prepare you for when you get out of that flight and get on those grounds because it's because of the um, you know because it's at such high altitude, you tend to have a breathing issue. And for the first two days, we had to, the first day we arrived, we had to climb up. Uh, there was an inn that we stayed at and we had to climb up maybe just a flight of stairs. And I thought I had smoked a thousand cigarettes. I could not get up that flight of stairs. It was worth it because we, we raised all that money. And uh, from what I, I keep in touch with the NGO and we get we get an email off and on and their work has started on that on that hostel. And then you went back uh, the following year to do the Ladakh Marathon. Gosh, amazing. Yeah, because it was, you know, silly me. Silly. <laughs> but I did. I went back, same friend, same same thing, you know. And so I did. But the only thing was I forgot my shoes. And so I literally... <laughs> you forgot your shoes? I forgot my shoes. And so I literally ran in somebody else's shoes. So I now know what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes. Oh, my goodness. And actually, but running a marathon is a really long way, first of all. And then you're running in Ladakh is very high altitude. And you're running in a pair of trainers or running shoes that are not the ones you've worn for your training. And, you know, I as a runner, I always think that your your trainers become like part of your part of you when you when you're doing that sort of thing you know that's a big deal it is a big deal and 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 21.1k so towards the end of it I thought I I literally thought I was going to die I literally <laughs> I, I I saw death staring at me <laughs> and I was like okay this is what it feels like for death to stare stare into your eyes <laughs> but you survived and but you did survived. it really well <laughs> I survived it but never again that's it. <laughs> never That's again. It. Never again. And in addition to all of this, um, you also run your own company, um, which is called Nindy Bindies. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And where, when and where did you start that one? So it was the same year after I got back from my Chadha trek. Um, you know, you come back feeling accomplished. You know, your life is good. Everything is great. And then I was bored. So I was like, okay, now what do I do? You know, do I do something with my life? I mean, I do a lot of charity work, but what do I do to bring in money? You know, to something, just a little something to sustain myself. And and I I did have a home, small home business when my kids were little. So so I kind of you know I'm I'm used to having something on the side. And uh, so I came back and you know sat down one day with Edward and I was like, come on, there's so much more to me. You know, my mother didn't name me Nanora for no reason. You know, so I was like, I have to do something. I have to be something. So he was like, why don't you do? Why don't you make bindis? You know, because I really do. I love Indian wear. I'm always in an Indian attire. My red lipstick, my bindi, and my Indian attire is like my my signature. And uh, so he's like, "Why don't you make bindis? Because you they they are available. They are available in India, but not the kind I make." So, so I was like, "Okay." So I researched. God bless YouTube, along with Google. And I YouTube <laughs> went on YouTube, sat down, looked at how the the bindi was made. Because what I make is the tribal belly bindi. Uh, and the tribal belly bindi is different from your regular Indian bindi. So the tribal belly is a metal bindi. And it's stuck on with uh, with glue. But the regular Indian bindi, you get the glue attached to your bindi. So you just, it's a one-time use. You use it once and you throw it out. But the one I make, you reuse. 
one thing about Dubai is they tend to, because it's such a big community um, of Indians and expats, they tend to have a lot of exhibitions. So if you make something different or if your product stands out from the others, you can actually get into an exhibition and exhibit your product. And so that's how my name went around and, and everybody knew that I was the only one doing it. So people stopped calling me Ninora or Nino. They would call me Nindi because they couldn't remember my name, you know. So so that's how Nindi Vindi. So so that's how I was known to so many people back then. The Nindi Vindi lady. Yeah, the Nindi Vindi lady. <laughs> oh, cool. And can you tell me a little bit about, I'm really intrigued about your tribal belly dancing. It, what? Tell me a little bit about that. And um, what's what's the difference between tribal belly dancing and, and any other kind, if there is any difference? There is a difference. Um, so the tribal belly, I started when I was in Connecticut. A group of moms, I have, a, she's now a very, very dear friend and a very close friend, my teacher, uh, Tammy, Tamara Baboon, but she is a beautiful human being. So she was the one who, who taught us our belly dancing in Connecticut. And basically what it is, is the difference is the tribal belly dance takes on a lot of Indian influence. So the skirts are very Indian. The, the jewelry is very Indian. We wear the choli blouses. We don't wear. So, so you have your travel belly dance and then you have the other belly dance, right? The other belly dance has your, your scarves and you have the tight fitting, the, you know, the figure hugging where your every curve of your body is shown. But with the, with the tribal belly dance, what's elegant and what's pretty is that you have these long flowy skirts with a lot of frills on it. And you have layers. So you layer your skirts. You layer your... So everything is... is So when you dance and when you flow around the room, it's a very elegant... And not to say that the other, the, the, the other belly dance is not. That's also very, very elegant. But this is far more elegant. <laughs> but it, just, it leaves quite a lot to the imagination, is yes. the image I'm getting. Yes. And you okay. wear your choli blouses and you wear a lot of flowers in your hair. You wear a lot of uh, Indian, the silver, chunky Indian jewelry, you know, chunky bangles, that kind of stuff. And you're now in Miami. And um, I love that you've emailed me that you're hoping to study sign language. At, can you just, just to finish with, do you want to tell me a little about that, Nina? Yeah, it's always been my dream. It's always been something I've always felt... Um, you know, uh, that I've wanted to be a voice to, to people who can't hear. And, uh, and I, when I first moved to New York, uh, after, I, after all my trips to the different places, I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn sign language. So I bought a book. I bought a book and I started to learn it. And then things happened, life happened, children happened, you know, the move back to Dubai happened and nothing happened. So long story short, I've moved back here and I've said, this is my mission. I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to continue to do my Nindi Bindi and the podcast. And then while I'm at this, I'm also going to learn sign language. So this has been my, my dream and my passion. And I, and I pray that it, that I am able to, uh, able to do it. So if people want to find you, what is your website or your handles or where can they find you online? Okay, so for our podcast, which is NRI Women Podcast, we have our website, www nriwoman.com for twitter we are uh, our handle is uh, nri underscore woman and for instagram we're at nri woman podcast all one word thank you so much for joining me Nina. and um yeah good luck with everything in the future i'm so grateful for your time oh thank you Naomi. thank you for having me and uh, um you know for giving us this opportunity to even talk about our podcast and and my life thank you i appreciate this what a warm and kind woman nina is I would definitely urge you to check out her podcast as there are some really interesting and unexpected stories of Indian women on there. 
That's it for this week. Next week is our final episode before Christmas and we are joined by our very first Olympic athlete. You know how much I love sports. So this was very exciting for me and I'm really looking forward to sharing that conversation with you. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave a nice review on your favorite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next week.